0: Two-part series here, y'all, face in the Fresh Vibe podcast. I am Ro Hattie coming at you from Treaty 7 lands, in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. On this episode, Chandra Crane. I am thrilled to bring this and the next one, episodes to you. Because It covers a topic I don't think five years ago, 10 years ago, certainly not 20, 25 years ago I ever thought I would be having a conversation around, and that is embracing the fullness of your multi-ethnic identity, which is the tagline to Chandra's debut book, Mixed Blessing. We are going to center the narratives of biracial, multiracial, multi-ethnic people So if that's you, this one's for you. For everyone else, it's also for you. You'll be able to be the fly on the wall to take in some stories and come into a new world. I believe that the future of leadership in organizations and in the church will be led by multi-ethnic people. Why? Because, I might be biased here, because we have the cultural competency to lead, to lead in multi-ethnic settings. Who better than those who've lived it out, who continue to live it out day by day, that lived experience counts. We're chameleons in many ways, able to put on a different skin. That's probably the wrong metaphor, actually. We're going to talk about that later on in this episode and in the next one. Our superpower, as Chandra shares with us, is one where we have extra cultural competencies and we should use those to our advantage, not merely to survive, but to thrive. If the picture of the church is one where in the end, every tribe, tongue, and nation, and that word nation is ethnicity, comes together, well, who better to lead those expressions in the here and now than multi-ethnic folks? Enough from me. Let's jump into our conversation. We'll get to know Chandra a little bit, where she lives, her people, and then we'll roll into, in the second part, some ideas from her book, Mixed Blessing. So let's go. try to shy away from questions of like and what are you and <laughs> um, but try to pull that into deeper questions about your space and we mm-hmm. and your place which we started off chatting a little bit about and then mm-hmm. a deeper question about who are your people which extends mm-hmm. more or past a measure of s- safety whether or not you are culturally safe as a person. Um, so let's start with that. Where are you situated? The lands on which you are on? And who are your people?
1: Yeah, those are such great questions. And I love, I love the way you phrase them because it captures the nuance that is necessary in this multi-ethnic experience. And I mean, that's one of the biggest things that I preach to the world is mixed folks are very prophetic in the ways in which we see things mm. through different eyes. And we yes. ask questions in different ways. And we, imp- we apply nuance to so many things out of necessity. Um,
0: I love that.
1: Yeah, so I, l- I love that. I love that question i am currently in the deep south deep south in the jackson mississippi area um on the ancestral lands of the choctaw and of course depending on what time frame we're talking and Mm. where you know there aren't strict borders um for for native folks in the same way that there are for a a white capitalistic culture (laughs) but Choctaw, also Tunica, um, Natchez, and um, Haoma or Homa people. So grateful for that. My husband and I have been married 20 years now, which is wild. Yeah. And we managed to make it 17 years without ever buying anything, mostly because we're lazy. And so we were happy to rent for all of our lives. We finally decided, all right. We've saved our pennies enough, let's go ahead and purchase a home and and make that investment since we knew we would be settling in this area. And so we bought a house and that first Thanksgiving, I was so keenly aware of our privilege and our place on this land and the weird tension of as we're sitting around the table, which we're not trying to tell the fake Thanksgiving story, but we are gathering people at our table, because that's important to us. Mm -hmm. And so we're sitting around eating good food with friends and family, and just so keenly aware that we have a deed that says this is our land, but it isn't. Mm -hmm. And just feeling that tension, which I think comes back to that mixed experience of, yeah, this is our land, but it isn't. Mm -hmm. We occupy this space, but We don't own it. And even the first peoples who originally lived on this land, literally our lot that our house sits on, wouldn't have said, I think that they owned the land either. Right. If we can think about prototypical ways in which native folks engage the land, they inhabited it, Mm -hmm. they inherited it, they lived on it, um, but they didn't think they owned it. And so Mm -hmm. trying to get past the guilt Mm -hmm. of this unfair system and instead embrace more of that native sense of place of, okay, we have been given this land as a gift. How can we inhabit it well? Mm -hmm. In what ways can we see justice done in this space um, as a small measure of redemption? So that's a long answer to the place where we live. Um, Mm -hmm. Originally from New Mexico, from the Southwest. So very informal, very slow pace of life. Then moved to Atlanta, was in Atlanta for 10 years. Very fast pace of life, but a little more formal and then moved here to the Deep South and actually love it here. It's not easy. Mm. Part of that is you asked who are our people. Our people in part shapes the way we feel about the Deep South because we're in a multi-ethnic or at least um, bi-racial church and so we're in a fairly conservative denomination but we have a black head pastor and for our family being multi ethnic multicultural multiracial that means a lot and so the ways in which we engage this black white binary is very different i think because we have folks in our lives that are in some ways it's still very monocultural mm-hmm but we're trying, right? But we have we have several black best friends, right? Which is the, the, the awkwardness of we have black friends, uh, but we, we, <laughs> we have a community of black folks who have graciously called us friends, called us family, who are graciously welcome, welcoming us to their land, mm. to their place. And so our people group were very spoiled by having that diversity to raise our daughters in our school system is also fantastic so we're in well i have to admit it's a suburb even though i don't like to think about it because i'm pushing back on that too right like i don't live in the suburbs but i mean i i I do if i'm being honest um but our school district very intentionally in response to a lot of what was going on in the 60s with mysteriously private schools popping up mm-hmm. right at the same time they were required to integrate. Mm-hmm. Right. Class. Our public school system, right. Our public school system, like anti redlined, and it's actually been mm. featured in on, online. I think there was mm. the uh, there was a HuffPost article about our school district where there is one school that is K one, one school that is second, third grade, fourth, fifth, one school that is sixth, et cetera. So in our district, which is 30,000 people, maybe, mm-hmm. all the kids go to the same schools. So there is no rich, poor, which let's face it, is usually white, black, delineating line. Mm-hmm.
0: I'm just reflecting on how you were sharing about the lands that you were situated on, and one of the words of, of describing that I would use, or rather that the indigenous folks use, is relationship and, and the relationship mm. to land and mm-hmm. how that's juxtaposed to ownership, a relationship to the, the, the core of the capitalist engine of expansion of, of ownership and how mm-hmm. those two mm-hmm. stand in opposition to one another. We'll, we'll get into aspects of formation, but sure. to share with us <laughs> yeah. um, in terms of formation of who are your people who have formed you?
1: Yeah, yeah, that's such a good question. And I have to laugh, right? Mm. Because with your gracious questions you're asking, it gave me freedom to meander, which I so appreciate, right? And again, that's part of the mixed experiences, that fluidity mm-hmm. and asking these questions in different ways stages of life in different contexts so foundationally my family of origin my birth father was a thai national my mom is white american she met him in college in our small new mexico town which was also ended up being my alma mater and they fell in love she went back to thailand with him they got married once she was pregnant with me she started getting really homesick And so she wanted to come back to the States and have me here, which I often ponder, it would have been fun to have dual citizenship, right? Mm. (laughs) If Mm. I had been born in Thailand, Mm. but that would have been until I was 18 um, anyway. But things just didn't work out between them. Culturally, very different. Culturally, my birth father apparently wanted to be in Thailand. It was his home. Mm. And I understand that. Um, Even as I'm processing 40 years later, the grief and the tension of he never met his firstborn child. I never met him. He passed away Mm. um, before I got to reconnect with my birth family and go to Thailand. So for the first five years, it was me and my white mom. I looked fully, whatever that means, Asian Mm -hmm. when I was little. So I had the jet black, long, dark, thick, straight hair. No freckles at that time and the very prototypical Asian eyes. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And then my mom remarried when I was five and she married um, an African-American, a black guy. And so he was my dad. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't remember a time without him. He taught me how to ride a bike. He walked me Mm -hmm. down the aisle. Mm -hmm. So I was the black guy's Asian kid. Yeah. in this small New Mexico town where it was mostly actually probably 40-60 um Hispanic which is often the preferred term in New Mexico or Chicano and 60% white well 59% white right and then 1% my family <laughs> 1% yeah. the others
0: yeah. finally the 1% uh, yes
1: the one yes I, I was in i was in the 1% And I'm also keenly aware that my dad raised me and this is something I'm recently processing instead of his own black son. So Mm. a lot going on there, right. In my family of origin, in a lot of ways, I identify more with black culture than I do Asian culture. Mm -hmm. I I didn't get to visit Thailand until I was in my thirties. I don't speak the language. I realized later when I started researching Especially for the book, and started encountering more Asian culture in my work within a varsity. That there are a lot of ways my mom did raise me mm. in that Asian prototypical sense of what will the neighbors think, and mm. um, some some types of indirect communication. Uh, but for the most part, I was raised in in a sense of white norm- normalcy, in a sense of mm-hmm. white supremacy, in a sense of um, white normativity. Except for my Black dad, right? And that, that changed everything, the way I looked at the world, even as I was encountering it, as especially as I got older, as white presenting. Of course, now I have the freckles. My eyes have rounded some. I wanted so badly when I was young to look white, even though I couldn't have articulated that. And when I finally got to high school and started being comfortable with my appearance, that's when the genetics started to make themselves known <laughs> and I suddenly started to present more as white. So that was wildly aggravating. My hair is curly though, which is fun. So my mom's genetics took over at that point. So I have this curly hair, um, which is actually really fun because as I'm embracing more and more of appreciating black culture, uplifting black culture without appropriating it, hopefully, I'm glad that I have this wild curly mixed hair mm. And it's funny because I'm so keenly aware that I'm not ethnically Black, but culturally, I was raised by a Black man. Mm -hmm. Culturally, I am loud and gregarious, and I love being honest and I love direct communication. Mm. And I love my big curly hair and I love big earrings and I love my Black family Um, my aunts and uncles and my cousins who I've done a lot more life with than any of my Asian family. Yeah. So that was very formative. And then of course being raised in this mestizo state where you have the Hispanic interactions with the native peoples, New Mexicans are very proud of the, the native culture, at least as it has been appropriated, but also it's just such a deep part of the culture. Our flag has a Zia symbol on it. We love turquoise, right? And so just all of these things as a child growing up, not realizing how I was being formed by them mm. until later as I started asking these questions of who, I am, who am I, especially when I left New Mexico when I got married. And suddenly I wasn't in my hometown anymore. I was in this strange place called sort of the South in Atlanta, And then I was engaging with more black folks Of course, Atlanta has a high population of African-Americans engaging more with Asian folks working, doing campus ministry, but at the same time being mostly in that white world of our church in Atlanta. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until moving to the Jackson area that then I started actually being able to do life with black folks in our church. And I remember when my husband got the job, moved us here to Mississippi and thinking, can my white mom and black dad visit us here? Will it be safe? Mm. And there are definitely sundown towns still in Mississippi. There are definitely small towns in Mississippi where I would not have wanted, my dad passed away um, almost 10 years ago now, but I would not have wanted them to visit. But Jackson, I feel like is special because people are asking these questions because they have to. Right, This is Mississippi burning. This is Hmm. a place where you can't just say, oh, well, we're past race, we're colorblind in a way that I think often happens in Atlanta. Hmm. Atlanta was the city that's too busy to hate during the civil rights movement, Mm -hmm. right?
0: Uh
1: Jackson was not. And so (laughs) it was amazing seeing my formative years come into play when my white mom and my black dad came and visited me in Jackson where I was learning more about all aspects of myself and wrestling with where my upbringing interacts with my present state, where my formational values come into play with the South, where even black folks are going to be more formal. Black folks such as they are in New Mexico are still probably gonna dress a little more casually than black folks in the South for things like church, right? Church hats are a thing for, for white folks too, but especially for black folks. So there's there's just more, more of that formality, more of that indirect communication, even though it's still very flamboyant and very large, which I love. Um, so when I think about where I come from, then it's interesting to think about it in context of my kids who my oldest, she's 12 now, she used to when she was small, she knew about fractions from a young age Mm. and she would tell perfect strangers, which is wildly entertaining in and of itself, I'm a quarter Thai and three quarters white, but my Gramps was black, which was just so wildly entertaining in the middle of the grocery store where Southerners are on their best behavior, (laughs) probably have makeup on, Engaging with this little kid who knows no strangers, it's really funny seeing how she and her sister, Mm -hmm. their family of origin, their formation is so different than mine in some ways.
0: Mm -hmm. People can't figure that out if they would hear them. Right. There's like, there's no reference point for that.
1: Right. Can't put them in a box.
0: Which I think in many ways is now an asset, but... Yeah, there's no, yes. even even in a bigger city, I think there would be no reference point. It would probably be more um, normal in some ways, normative, but uh, there's no, for the number of intersections that you have crisscrossed uh, in your formation, um, well, maybe I'll change that. I think that there's increasing reference points now as we become more yes, alert culturally yeah. to to intersections and intersectionality as as a way to describe the world that we're in. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. also used a, a term white presenting and and to pull in um the tension from within of your own experience being bombarded, I would assume, with Uh, aspects of what is culturally accepted and beautiful and Mm -hmm. on down the line. But what is it, and and I've been unpacking this a little bit for some of my friends who are biracial. When I look at you and I see you, you're clearly Asian to me. Um, But at the same time, so and I know... And here's where I'm going with this question. I know my friends who are biracial, black and white, that they embody blackness, at least in skin, right? And so society will immediately label them as black. But culturally, they they walk that tension. They may be very white culturally. And in the very least, they are balancing this tension of like, I can't hate half of my white self. Yeah. I am white. Yeah. Um, I'm not half white. And, and that's one of the nuances in your book. I've, I've appreciated right. that. of stop fractioning myself. But um, so how, how do you balance in that tension? When I say to you, you're clearly Asian to me, in what ways do you internally feel a tension of erasure of your white or European self.
1: So first of all, I feel emotional because that's something I've longed for for so long now.
0: Hmm. Which one?
1: There's to, to, to look Asian. Hmm. right Once I became hmm. comfortable with being Asian and yet there's a lot of privilege in no no one has used a slur against me in a long time. Hmm. No one has asked me if I know kung fu in a long time. We'll see. <laughs> and, we'll and see. Part of you
0: misses it. Oh no, no, maybe not.
1: <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, I miss feeling like I'm enough. Mm. Mm. Right. So when I presented as fully Asian, especially in the context of a small New Mexico town that just didn't quite know what to do with Asians in general, mm. at least I felt like I was enough to be noticed. Mm. And again, mixed people often look at uh, often look at other mixed people and say, "Oh, I can totally see it." We'll see after um, Shang Chi comes out, which I'm so excited about. Um, we'll see if people start asking me again if I know kung fu. Um,
0: oh no, <laughs> the blowback. <laughs> we'll
1: see the blowback, yeah, right? Yeah, or an even um, after Crazy Rich Asians, right? With Henry Golding, I think is his name. He's he's mixed. Um, and he still was tapped to play the lead opposite Constance Wu. And of course there's layers and
0: hmm.
1: complicating factors and you know, a lot to be said about that film as well as Chong um, chi So we'll see. We'll see where that conversation goes. But when you say, I can obviously tell the majority of that is is a sweet feeling mm-hmm. like, oh, okay, I'm not completely whitewashed. Mm-hmm. But there is that tension for, for those of us who are mixed, who are monoracial, but multi-ethnic. So I have a dear friend who is Chinese-Japanese mm-hmm. and another good friend who's actually Chinese-Thai, which is really special to me to connect with him There's still a hierarchy there. There's still a history of oppression Mm. or of conflict. Yeah, yeah. But it's not quite as pronounced Mm. in terms of the brutality of whiteness. Mm. And I'm still figuring out what it means to be half or white from my mother's side. One of the things That I really love is seeing white folks dig into their history and their backgrounds and their ancestry. They
0: have to. Yeah.
1: They have to, they have to. And I think it can go a couple different ways. Of course, it can go the cultural appropriation way. Mm -hmm. Okay, I've got German ancestry. Um Ispagn German. And, you know, that in a way that is not healthy and is appropriative and all about stereotypes. But I've seen people also say, wow, I had a German great-grandfather. What can I learn about him? Mm -hmm. I had a German great-great-great-grandmother. What was life like for her? Survive to thrive in the United States, for those of us who are in the United States or in Canada. What little things can I appreciate from that history? What prototypes, as opposed to stereotypes, came out of that family of origin for them Mm. what Mm. what recipes what family Mm. norms yeah i think that's so powerful Mm -hmm. and another way it can go which i don't see as much except in pushback to my multi ethnicity is oh well we're all mixed
0: Mm.
1: well no right because for those who are white in north america you your varying ethnicities are a footnote Mm-hmm. And they don't affect the way you're perceived. Yeah. Well, I mean, they do affect the way you're perceived, but not negatively. Yeah.
0: By design. Yeah.
1: Um, right, by design. So you can just step into or continue to exist in that white space. And you've got all of the social capital you need, even if you're in a different socio- socioeconomic or educational status. But I love seeing white folks do that work. And I think it's very freeing to me to do that work, um, to start thinking about that work in looking at my white half. So I actually took a DNA test. You're the first person like publicly that I've told, and I haven't opened my results yet.
0: Oh, are you going to do a live results opening?
1: I'm going to film it, but I don't know (laughs) if I'm going to do it live. Right. Because there's so much there. Oh boy. right? I don't want to do that. Yeah. uh, See, and that's the thing, like, I don't feel a need to do it for my Thai side. Mm, mm, I I know I'm Thai, although there is a small fear that it's going to come back Chinese or something insane, right? Because those tests are,
0: they'll be there. I biased
1: towards white. Oh,
0: mm -hmm.
1: right. So, so I did it to find out more about my white European ancestors Yeah, Yeah, to find out their stories and to have a little bit more of a mental picture of where, yeah where they came from, where I come from. Mm. I think I had to do the work of digging into my Asian ethnicity first though, before I felt comfortable Mm. to start asking questions about my white ancestry. Mm. Because my white ancestry, because of the power dynamic, I mean, I have ancestors who came and took lands that did not belong to them in one way or another. Whether it was they bought some land, whether it was because they settled Mm. on the land in a violent way. Um, I have ancestors who did that work of assimilation. Again, for some, that that was the only way forward. And they took that privilege and they ran with it. I really needed to dig into the marginalized part of myself first for me. And I'm not saying that's necessarily normative for what other folks who have that white and mixed ethnicity have to do or need to do. But for me, I think it was very important to first identify with what does it mean to be Asian in America? What does it mean to have been absolutely mocked as a child for the shape of my eyes for the ways in which my mom did use fish sauce, um, napla, growing up instead of salt, <laughs> which is one of the things I love <laughs> about my upbringing uh. in everything, spaghetti sauce, sausage dish- dishes. I mean, it's so good. It's so good. It's but unami. it smells. Yeah. yeah, it's that umami, exactly. But it does. It smells, right? It has a distinct smell. Um <laughs> And I don't even mean, you know, it's scented, we, we shouldn't say, because that smells yeah. has a negative smell connotation.
0: Smell to who, yeah, yeah.
1: Right, 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 right. But it has a distinct scent. Yeah, I just, I had to be free to figure out what it means to be Thai American before I was ready to dig into the American part. And apparently I'm still not ready <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> because I haven't, I mean, it's been in my box for going on two weeks now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm just really gathering up the gumption, yeah. asking the Lord to prepare my heart of what for brings. what the results are. Yeah. 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 It's very Schrodinger's box, right? Yeah.
0: Oh, yeah. It's very much like,
1: (laughs) until I open that email,
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: right? Right? Until I open that email, I am both enough and not enough. Yeah. But isn't that the mixed story, right? Isn't that the mixed story? And maybe that's why I'm more comfortable with not opening it yet. Because maybe there is a part of me somewhere given by the Holy Spirit, fostered by our mixed multi-ethnic Jesus Mm. that says, I don't have to open this email. Mm. I could go the rest of my life not opening this email and it would be okay.
0: Yes, it would be.
1: Yeah, Yeah. it would be. I mean, I might expire from the question. (laughs) It might be the end of me (laughs) to wonder all my life. (laughs) But yeah, I don't have to, because Mm. again, I know my family story At least to some extent. I do have my identity in Christ, which gives meaning to all of my human identities in this here and now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm giving myself a pep talk right now. So thank you, Drahadi. Like, here I am, right. right? Working it out in real time. I don't know. I'm just sitting here <laughs> absorbing
0: and processing my own, <laughs> like, I've always thought, A, I don't want to give some corporation my DNA because it's so right? weird and unique. And then B, I am yeah. fascinated. I am. And and it's probably to do with adding some pieces to all of the different questions. Uh, whether or not I can fill those questions with names, however... That will mm. be the challenge. I can only go back so far mm. until things right. starts to be lost uh, through stories, mostly of systemic oppression. And so right. w- w- what does that really fill for me? But, oh, yeah, I'm totally... Like, it will probably situate, in some sense, my Indian roots, you go all the way into right. India somewhere. Um, it might give a sense to... Well, it won't give a sense to the intersections and power dynamics that you shared between mm-hmm. my Japanese and my Chinese side. Like what well, what is it that culturally forms in me? the notion that culturally, I have this huge uh, question. I, I regard China as, as this suspect. Right. And the other part of me is like, wait a minute, you're Chinese, man. Like, what are right? you doing? Or right? the, the tension <sighs> of Jap- Japan and China. And Japan is a very imp- an imperialist nation and all the horrors mm-hmm. and atrocities they've caused, but also the tension of internment camps here right, on these lands. Yeah, I think I need to ask those questions and oh, I'm not I'm not at the open the email or send in the swab yet, but maybe it's cuz I just have to do more work into my own people and put some names to the tree and then then I can go through the the answers to all the questions. I'm not ready for answers. Not ready.
1: Me either. <laughs> That's why I haven't opened it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I think white people need to do that work, though. Not, But there's too many white folks where it's like, so what are you? Because I always twist that. Now, nobody's really asked me that in a while. So that's I, I chalk that up to some cultural shifts.
1: Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. But like, what are you? It's like, I don't answer that anymore. And I don't know, I, maybe I'm just not very nice when people, but it's like, I'll twist it back on you. Well, what are you and who are your people? And, and right. a lot of white folks right. can't answer that. It's like, well, I've never really thought about that. I'm white. And it's just like, nah, man, that's what culture is placed on you. You got to think harder than that. And, and that's right. the loss of whiteness and, and that you just become vanilla. You lose your identity.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: But all those things of racialized identity aren't taken into New Heaven, New Earth. So you better find your ethnicity, because those are the things that count and that carry forward with you, that will be redeemed. Yeah. True. Before we get into your hey, book, okay. Dig in of church formation. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, my story is growing up evangelical, up -hmm. until seminary, evangelical seminary, uh, but white evangelicalism. I wouldn't have painted it as that. Right. Wouldn't have labeled it as white Even There was no other evangelicalism. Right. It was just, it just was, but to label mm-hmm. it. But that was my formation as this multi-ethnic, weird Caribbean, like <laughs> like the one you're sharing with, like, you know, culturally you, you were raised by a black father. And so those pieces are there. I'm like, yeah, it's like my Caribbean side. And, but I, it, it may be slightly different if I should hang on to those things because that is me. And like, if I right? h- s- switch into uh, like a, Caribbean English Creole or whatever, then whatever. I'm not appropriating anybody. I'm being me. When the sun's out, I'm actually returning back to my natural nutty hue instead of the pasty uh, off-brown that I have during the winter, the long Canadian winters. (laughs) But uh, when it comes to church and as that multi-ethnic human being, you don't see yourself, you don't even reflect really unless someone brings it to your attention the the beauty of who you are because it's been assimilated into dominant church culture what did formation look like for you what's kind of I would say growing up but perhaps it, it's growing up but coming into uh, your formative years
1: so one aspect that, I didn't have growing up when it comes to both my ethnicity and my cultural story was the church. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: So growing up, um, my mom is a believer. My dad did not become a believer until shortly before he died in large part because of the hurts he had Mm. experienced as a black man in the South. So originally from the South, originally from South Carolina. But I was not really raised with that church culture, that evangelical yeah. white culture. Yeah. So just kind of ah religious in the majority of my experiences. Okay. So I kind of mourn that, that I didn't have that black church upbringing. I became a believer in college and was welcomed and loved by a white evangelical church, a Baptist, Southern Baptist church. And again, like you said earlier, would not have been able to articulate, oh, this is a white experience. It just was an experience. Yeah,
0: just was. Yeah.
1: It just was. But I definitely needed to assimilate. I definitely needed to be very intentional. And again, I didn't know this, but in code switching into yeah. white Southern Baptist evangelical norms, uh-huh. the way the ways that there's an expectation of what it looks like to be a young woman hmm. yeah. in that hmm. culture. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the ways in which it's acceptable to communicate the styles of worship music, the ways in which you comport yourself um, in the midst of purity culture. Yeah. So I became a believer and was literally baptized into this church at the I would say the height of purity culture. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember when I Kissed Dating Goodbye came out (laughs) vividly. Wow. So there's definitely this sense of not knowing just how much I was being indoctrinated into white culture. Yeah. 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 And definitely this sense of somewhere in the back of my mind though, realizing that I needed to be very careful and not bring ethnicity into the picture. Hmm. Because, hmm. yeah, because the culture, right, is here's what it looks like to be biblical. And because there's no acknowledgement, right, of the lenses through which all of us encounter biblical culture, then it was assumed that if I deviated from that white norm, that I wasn't being biblical. And so it's taken a lot of asking questions and you know deconstructing is the buzzword now, and that has pros and it has cons, but definitely going back through and saying, what are the foundational assumptions I have about what it means to follow Jesus that are untrue or at least are preferential. That was what I had to and have to continue asking myself. And and that is the insidious, insidious nature of white normativity, right? Is that it just is, like you said, it just exists. I think the thing that is hardest for me, I mentioned this in the book is that church loved me very well. I came into that church very rough around the edges. I, well, and which I had, you know, the perfect testimony. And I love now being in a church tradition where the boring conversion stories or the never knew a day where I didn't know Jesus are valued equally. And sometimes at the expense of the dramatic conversion stories, because there's such an emphasis on covenant children but i just love that in our current denominational climate my husband's story is every bit as precious as mine Hmm. because he never knew a day where he didn't know jesus Hmm. he was raised by followers of course he's had ebbs and flows of his own faith and making it his own but he's been a believer ever since he could remember Mm -hmm. i had this amazing testimony and got trotted out a lot at you know, youth rallies, which is a whole nother discussion on the commodification of people mm. and mm. Gross. and testimonies. Yeah. Right. <laughs> but there was a lot of love for me and a lot of patience with me when I showed up and had quite a mouth on me. Still do. Uh, but mostly only. I started cursing again, mostly once I went to seminary. So again, that's another discussion we can have. Not because my seminary was in any way associated with Mars Hill, uh, but because I was so aggravated by the majority of the students I encountered that it just made me want to curse. And that, again, that's another story for another time. But all that is to say, my hometown, white Bible Belt Church really did love me well, as best they could. But they were hampered by white normativity. And so there was a lot of grace for the things that were unique to me, but but could be polished up. There was not an expectation to immediately conform to what it meant to be spiritual. But there was an expectation that eventually those things would be polished and rubbed away and the the rough edges would be dealt with. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, of course, some of those rough edges, quote unquote, were just me, my personality, my upbringing, my ethnicity, my culture, my story, my experience. And so it's just another tension, another interesting story to be able to say, I loved that, love that church, loved it loved being there, loved them, felt well loved by them, except in some issues of gender, but honestly not many, but except in terms of ethnicity. And that was just the one area where they just were very, very blind.
0: Is there a moment in your formation where you became alert to how incongruent your body was within, and not just the on a gender side, or a purity culture side, but an alertness where it was evident that it wasn't just normativity, but the, the tentacles of white supremacy were such that it was pulling you from living out your whole self.
1: Yeah, wow. Um, I love that you put that in the embodied sense, right? My body took up space In that place Mm -hmm. and it changed everything yeah was there a time probably
0: or when was the time i should say
1: when yeah yeah, when was the time so so definitely an ongoing journey Mm -hmm. i don't know that i could point to like the moment right but once we moved here and i started being exposed to black church culture You know, our choir sways and and it's still very toned down (laughs) for the white folks in the congregation, of which I am one and yet I'm not, right? There's that mixed story. But when I started being exposed to the joy and the exuberance and the passion of Black church culture, the emphasis on the power of the Holy Spirit, that definitely made me start feeling the tension of, man, it was awfully quiet in our home church, in that little church in rural New Mexico, Mm. where my husband grew up and Mm -hmm. then, you know, we were married there. So I walked the aisle, quote unquote, which is a very Baptist thing, white and black, um, walked the aisle to confess my sins, right? And to say, I want to become a believer. Uh, And then walked up the aisle to be married in that same church. But I think. When I started to do the bigger work of. What does it mean that. My body. Is not. Fully white. That my body takes up space. And that Jesus body. Looks nothing. Like the background mental image that white evangelicals have mm. of Jesus, mm. not just he wasn't blue eyed and blonde haired, which I don't think the blue eyed and blonde haired was really, it wasn't that far in, in this little evangelical church, but it was definitely, he was pale skinned and brown haired and he still was white. And he was still was American yeah. in appearance yeah. in in the way he comported himself Mm, mm -hmm. in the way he, there wasn't even a theology of in the way he still exists as an embodied savior Mm. right now in heaven at the right hand of the father, waiting to Mm. see his kingdom Mm -hmm, fulfilled mm -hmm. and to come to us in his body. You don't have to. Yeah. Right. You don't have to because it's just assumed that he's in the background of everything. He's white and he's spiritual yeah. so and you break that down. I'm not
0: really worried. So w- w- is it your own your own body, your own self that it starts to break those pieces down was the multi-ethnic Jesus although you may have not described him as such initially was that the catalyst or the the capstone as it were to shift your formation and your thinking?
1: So when I read a book by NT Wright Okay. And this was when we were still in Atlanta called Surprised by Hope. Mm-hmm. Actually, and this is just another glimpse into my personality. I have a, an advanced reader copy of it, which I'm just utterly smug about. It's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, you should. And I got to meet Do you him, bring it up in uh, right? every
0: conversation? Or
1: Well, okay. So here here's another glimpse into my seminary experience when I was feeling especially saucy and salty in this reformed space of seminary. Smug, saucy, and salty. Yes. Um I would switch my profile picture on Facebook to the one of me and my husband and the rights at dinner.
0: Oh, okay. Where you kind of so arm over and wink at yes, gun? Yes, absolutely.
1: <laughs> no, there was no gun. There was no gun, but there was a big cheeser. So he came to Atlanta, to Emory University, where I was campus a campus minister, mm-hmm. to do our Veritas form. hmm And so we got to take him out to dinner beforehand, myself and a couple other campus ministers. And so I was not missing this opportunity to get a picture with him. Mm -hmm. And his book blew my mind in terms of getting rid of Gnostic views of the new heavens and the new earth. And the goodness of being embodied. Mm -hmm. So, So that was one turning point. Probably... Yeah, about the same time, it would have been about the same time as when I read Sandy Fraser's Check All That Apply, which again, as we were talking about before we started recording, is one of, as far as I know, three books specifically about multi-ethnicity and being Christian. The third being Brian Bantam's Redeeming Mulatto.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I was reading Check All That Apply, hearing about for the first time the embodied Jesus who was and is multi-ethnic for intentionality, Mm. listed in his lineage, right, Mm -hmm. in Matthew 1. And again, we've talked about intersectionality. As I became more aware of my body and the ways in which it was and wasn't acceptable, thinking in terms of those four mothers, Ruth and Rahab and even Mary, thinking about the ways in which their ethnicity came into play as well as their gender. Uh I would say that was another significant point, which is funny, right? That I'm now I'm thinking, yeah, I'm dating all of this by books I've read. So that's, that's another funny thing. So reading surprised by hope, reading check all that apply and entering seminary coming out of Baptist spaces into more reformed Presbyterian spaces. Hmm. All of that gave me the freedom to start asking these questions. And in some ways, I think that's the same, it would have been the same in a lot of ways no matter what I was coming out of and coming into because that, that process is so formative, right? When you leave what is your normal, and encounter different things. It it blows a lot of categories out of the water. Mm. And so just that very act of moving away from New Mexico, Mm. moving into a more reformed denominational space, getting married, and then later, much later, having kids, uh, engaging more with black culture, getting to go to Thailand for the first time. These were very formative books that I was reading All of those were giving me permission, take up space with my body in a way that I had never felt was allowed or was certainly tolerated, much less celebrated. I'm so grateful that we're raising our daughters differently, that we have the ability to raise our daughters differently.